0: Well, you know what? Little kids are precious. And they are a life of the church. I'm telling you, I say this, but I really mean it. Because, boy, if you don't have younger generation underneath you, uh, what happens to us? So it's good to have all ages. That's what we're about, worshiping Christ. Now, we start a new chapter this week. The gears are going to shift a little bit. The drama is heightened. We are getting into the very final hours of Christ. And there are people who hate Christ, as we just said. Is that me? No? no okay. And there are people who want to kill Christ. It's hard to imagine that somebody would dislike Him, much less hate Him and... to even want to kill Him? What has He done to be killed, right? Um, there are people... Also, who desire to worship Christ. And boy, you have uh, two different kinds of views at odds with each other right in this passage that we have today. And people are going to land on one side of the fence or the other. There's no middle ground. There's no walking the fence. Either you hate Christ or you love Him. It's one or the other. There's no in-between. And so, we desire to know the things of Christ rather than live for ourselves and just um, ignore Him. Either one will hate the Son of God and spurn Him or they will love Him and worship Him. Either we're drawn to Christ or we are repelled by Christ. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. I think we've all seen that. I think uh, it's an experience that we we, we see and, and we realize that uh, there is truth to what the Scriptures say. The grand story of Christ is developing. It's coming now to the climax. We are right at the heart of this. Uh, it's going to reach its apex very soon. In our case, it's going to be weeks. In this case, it's really going to be a matter of a couple of days here, a few days. Religious establishment, they are deciding that Jesus must die. They've already decided that. They've been saying it for a long time. The whole world today wants to do away with Jesus. Have you noticed that? Christianity is becoming much less Uh, known than it ever has been before. There are people that do not want Him. They want to get rid of Him and all the vestiges that deal with Christ, whether it be the Bible or whether it be people who stand for truths, obvious truths. And there are followers. People will hate the followers of Christ. These are enemies of Christ that do that. They're not on the side of Christ. And if they're not on the side of Christ... You are against Him. One or the other. Jesus said that. Uh, some would say they don't hate Him. They just really don't have a lot of need for Him. But I don't hate Him. Well, the thing is, either you're against me, Christ said, or you're for me. There's only two sides. You're an enemy or you're a friend. And, man, that's that's remarkable. This is what our passage is about today. The contrast. You have the murderers and, and betrayers. Versus the ones who worship Him. And you know, there have been people wanting to kill Him not only in this last week, but not only during His ministry. You can go all the way back to the time He was born. A guy by the name of Herod who wanted to kill Jesus. And to make sure that he got Him, he understood that it was two years and less. So any child that was two years and under, he would have killed to make sure that he gets Jesus. And then in his very first part of his ministry in Luke 4, he goes into the synagogue, preaches a message there, right there in his own hometown of Nazareth. And what did they want to do? They wanted to drive him off of a cliff right there as soon as his ministry started. But you know what? It wasn't the time. And then we realize at the pool of Bethsaida, 5th chapter of John, he heals a man, happens to be on the Sabbath, and oh, that makes perfect. People just seething mad. They're very angry. And they want all the more to kill Him. And then in John 7, the temple police were sent to kill Him, to arrest Him, that they might execute Him, but it wasn't time. There are probably many more attempts that are not recorded in Scripture where people wanted to kill Him. But it wasn't time. It wasn't time for God and His Lamb to be slain. On the other hand, we see a beautiful story as we talk with the kids here. Here's this other part of the story. and This is what we're about. Being devoted to Christ. She was so devoted, she went to the extreme to demonstrate the love that she has. You know what? She represents all Christians. She represents those who have a relationship with Him. How is it that one person or people want to kill Jesus? Or get rid of Him. Get rid of Him in the schools or whatever. And then there are other people who want to fall down and worship Him as Lord. How is that? That's what we're going to be talking about. Let's uh, stand. Let's turn to our scripture this morning. Mark 14, in verses 1-11. through 11. Now, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head." But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Jesus Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you as we head into the very gospel itself this morning and it's pointing to the cross, and that's where the blood is shed. That's where there is something that's so horrible that happens, but something so beautiful because our sin is taken away there. this has to happen, but it's all in your timing, Lord. In Jesus name, amen. Well, we go, are you gonna be seated? And we go right to part one. This is the, the enemies of Christ. The enemies of Christ. The murder of Christ is exactly what we're headed for. The cross is the center point of all of redemption. This seems so brutal, doesn't it, with what happens here at, uh, at this? We know the story. The Romans were responsible for it. The Jews were responsible for it. I was responsible for it. You were responsible for it. But there's one other one that we forget to think about who's responsible for this. And this is God the Father who is responsible for this. Because not only is this the evil act and it's the most evil act ever perpetrated by evil men, at the same time, it's the most wonderful, loving act that could happen. The worst miscarriage of justice in history happened at the cross. And yet the greatest satisfaction of justice in history was done. What a paradox. Human injustice at its very worst. At its very worst. Even though God killed him for the sins that Christ didn't commit. God killed him for sins that we did commit. This is done for the most wonderful purpose. And it secures the salvation for sinners. God has all this under control. How can you have this happening while something good here is described? Isn't that amazing? That's the way that God is. And it's beyond our thinking, ultimately. But He lets us in on a little bit of this. God is definitely in control. If you look in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says this, No one... Has taken it away from me, somebody's life. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So He has this whole thing in control. Look in Luke chapter 22, verse 22. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to you that man by whom he is betrayed. Talking about the one in our story today too. Woe to him. But this is all predetermined. That's right. Acts 2.23 gives us a little bit of that. Peter preached this the very day of Pentecost. And in Acts 2.23, this is a remarkable thought here. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan. That's predestination. God had predestined this for the foundation of the world that this would happen with Christ. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge. There's predestination and foreknowledge right here in the very same verse. God had planned this out. Of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. We have something there that seems like opposites. God predetermined this. This was done before the foundations of the world, yet man is held responsible for doing it. How do you describe that? Well, in our finite minds, uh, we can't grasp that. All we can do is believe it, that this is a good thing, but it's an evil thing that happens. And men are responsible for their own sin. Even though God predestines and has foreknowledge of all of it. He predetermined this. Quite remarkable. Isaiah 53.10, same thing there. God was pleased to crush Him for our iniquities. Wow. Uh, okay, it says in Mark here that this is the time of Passover. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. It's coming up. It's that time. The great feast. First Passover. We know it's in Exodus. We know we see that where the children of Israel um, are delivered out of Egypt after there's been the the ten plagues. You have this tenth one and it's dealing with the, the Passover. And this is an important festival that's been followed from that time to the time of Christ. Let's say 1,400 years this has been going on every year, 1,400 times. Here we go again. The Passover lamb now is present amongst them. All the other lambs were just pictures to get an idea that there is an ultimate sacrifice, and He's there before Him. He is the Passover Lamb. If you'll look in First Corinthians chapter five, verse seven, Paul explains this in verse, right at the end of verse seven. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. You see that? The whole verse says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. So you have the unleavened bread feast and the Passover going at the same time. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the Lamb that was sacrificed. The lambs, multiple, thousands, probably 250,000 were being slain at the Passover in Jerusalem at this time. So that's what's happening and this is all in God's control. This Passover thing, it's not accident that all this is happening at that time because Christ is the Passover and as we develop this, as we get at that, we get this Passover story um, told to us in a very, um, I think, determined way by God to show that this is Controlled and fulfilled in the way that He wanted. God has His plan. God has His plan. And He's going to do what He's going to do at the perfect time. There are religious leaders that are going to help fulfill this plan who hate Jesus, and it's of their own accord. And they have a plan. They have a plan. Their plan is not going to be in the timing. Ultimately, we know it's God, and we know they've been planning for years to kill Him. They couldn't do it. Passover, two days away. The unleavened bread coming up within that same week. The chief priests, the scribes, were seeking how to seize Him by stealth and kill Him. It's their plan. But their plan... Is still controlled by God. Matter of fact, their plans are thwarted because they don't want to do it during the Passover. Why is that? Because verse 2 says, For they were saying, Not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. <laughs> They're scared of the people. So, that, that's, their plan is to kill him, yeah, but not now. And Jesus says, Now the time is. You know, in, uh, whenever I think about this, this is a conspiracy. This is where people collide or collude together something usually very dastardly. Theories. And then conspiracies. And uh, here we go, they have it in their mind how they're going to do it. You know, Proverbs has an answer for this. In Proverbs nineteen twenty one, you guys probably have heard this many times. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand so there we go they're all getting together God's going to use that and it says they come in stealth you know what stealth is don't you that's what they want to do they're going to seize him by stealth they're stealthy the word there is dalos it means deceit they come quietly not in a way that everybody can see this matter of fact if you really want to get technical here fish hook ah now is that helping out You got that word picture? A fish hook. They're going to seize him by stealth. Dalos. Deceit. It's actually a word for fish hook which is very deceitful if you're a fish. (laughs) That's how you get them. You know, if you advertise it and show exactly what you're doing there, you're not going to catch anything. But if you do it very deceitfully, (laughs) put some food on there. Well, in John eleven forty seven, we get some insights here of this same story. John eleven forty seven. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Uh oh, and were saying, "What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. <laughs> we gotta get rid of him." But you see all the miracles he done. They know that they've seen it. Well, look in verse fifty. Verse 49, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, a wise old high priest, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for the you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. He's saying a prophecy and he doesn't know what he's saying. He's saying he's going to die or otherwise this is uh, problems for our nation. He's going to die for the people. That's true, isn't it? Why is he saying that though? If there's an uprising here and if we have some kind of riot and this whole place goes crazy, what are the Romans going to do? All the Roman soldiers they have in there. Well, this this means major problems. It means a war. They'll kill them. And what are they going to do to this nation? They're under Roman rule. So this one man is going to have to die. We know that. We have to kill him. They're saying, yeah, but He does a lot of miracles. How are we going to do it? He says, He has to die. So there's a prophecy of Christ's death told by a man who hates Christ. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? God uses that. Kill. How to seize Him by stealth and kill Him. The word is apaktanas, And it means to murder. Just put the word out there, murder Him. They're going to murder Him. But they want to do it without a riot. Because they think he's so popular. Riot. They fear the riot. They fear the people. Not during the festival. There are as many as two million people here. They're from everywhere. By the way, it said, one one says, uh, and Mark says, it's not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of people. There are a lot of Galileans in town. Where did Jesus do most of his ministry? Galilee. Do you have a lot of people from Galilee that have followed him? Absolutely. Uh, you know what Galileans were known as? Excitable people. These excitable people are in Jerusalem where there is a crowd. What happens when you get excitable people amongst a the crowd? They start doing some things that they would normally not even do. These Galileans are capable of violence. The Judeans just despise Galileans anyway. And the Romans... Knew at the Passover that we got we have to take the the soldiers that are in Caesarea. And we have to bring them down to Jerusalem here and around the temple. So they have to watch out for the uprisings. It has happened before. Nothing, nothing like what they're thinking that could happen here. So they want to wait till after the huge crowd is gone. That only makes sense, doesn't it? That's their plan. God says. <laughs> No, it's going to happen at the Passover time. The very moment that he dies on the cross is whenever they're killing the Passover lambs over there at the temple. That's when he dies. He is the Passover lamb. It's noted that it, um, there were no riots. though. So that's interesting. Why were there no riots? Well, they did do it kind of stealthily, didn't they? But I'm wondering, what, what happened to all those followers? How come they're not at the cross and at least doing some kind of demonstration? Who was there? His mother and Mary John? Peter left? I mean, all the other disciples? There never was a riot. Huh. Okay, that was number one. That's the enemies of Christ. Now we go into the other aspect, the worshipers of Christ. He's at a friend's house, Jesus is. He's in Bethany. It says there, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. He's in Bethany. Uh, It's about two miles from Jerusalem. And that's where he would go at uh, at nights during the week when he'd go down into Jerusalem. Now there's a bit of discussion on what actually took place, when this took place. And it's placed by Mark right here during, there's two days before the Passover. It stated that. But most of your commentators, I think almost all of them that I ran into, I think were pretty safe to say that this is done by Mark and Matthew at this juncture because it does exactly what we're doing with this message today called enemy or worshiper of Christ. And what I want you to see is the play against the two types of people. There are really only two types of people. Unbelievers and believers. People who hate, people who worship. And I think that's why Matthew, Mark put this down in this way. But John will help back this up and this is why most of your commentators will say this. That in John chapter 12 verse 1, Jesus therefore six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead so they made him a supper there and Martha was serving. The best probability, and it doesn't matter, but I think the best probability is this was like six days before the Passover or like Saturday night before they go into the city. Remember the triumphal entry? This is when this probably happens. So he's taking us back in time. We call this kind of like a flashback because Mark is pitting the two kinds of people. And so I'm not coming up with that on my own. I'm just saying I think we're in very good company because I didn't find a commentator. I was trying to look. I could find somebody that said, no, this was just the two days before. They all say that and then you read John and you go, unless it happened twice. I mean, that's a possibility, but I I don't think so. I think that uh, happened at that time. Uh, so we're going back in time a little bit. Uh, the Gospels, by the way, are not biographies. It's not just a biography of Christ like you can pick up another biography and read about somebody historically. No. It's a picture of Christ. The Gospels are a picture of Christ. It is Christ. right? It's more than just reading a biography about somebody. So I, I believe because Mark does this along with the Holy Spirit, they contrast Marks or Mary's devotion against Judas' betrayal. So quite the contrast. The enemies of Jesus have their preparation. Mary has her preparation, her preparation for Jesus's death. Also, they're preparing later on. A few days later, here she is preparing now for his death and burial in her own way. You say, how can you say that? Because in verse 8 it says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body there beforehand for the burial. Wow. Now, these are very close friends. Very close. We all know about Lazarus. What about Lazarus? Well, it hasn't been too long back, maybe a few months ago, Jesus raised him from his death. He raised him. It's like a resuscitation, really. After three days, right? He stinketh. Um, there's Mary, there's Martha. We've seen them before. Mary at his feet. Where's Martha? She's in the kitchen. And so we we know about that. It's like a, this is like the actually the third time. Um, what about Simon the, the leper? Simon the leper. A lot of Simons. I think there are like ten Simons here, so how do we know who it is? Well we can't know for sure. I'll give you a good speculation. And it's for what it's worth. It doesn't matter. But for what it's worth, I was listening to Alistair Begg and I did see it in some other commentaries, and they always say it's possibility. He hit it pretty hard on it, but he wasn't being dogmatic. But he said, and I like this. Simon the leper very possibly could have been Lazarus and Mary and Martha's father. By the way, he's a, he's a leper? Well, he's not anymore because Jesus had healed him. And a leper can't be in the house of people. He can't be around people unless they're lepers. They have their own colonies. They're not to even be around downwind. or anything. You know, I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. And uh, he had been healed by Jesus. Can you imagine while they're eating at the table what they're talking about? What if they're talking about Christ's second coming? What if they're talking about the temple, which we had just talked about? What if they're talking about also about Lazarus? Hey, Lazarus, what was it like when you were in the tomb and you weren't here on earth? He says, it was a lot better than it is now. <laughs> Don't you think he was rejoicing being with him? He was a living witness. And we find out in another gospel that actually they want to kill him too. Well, that only makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely, He's a walking witness. Everybody was around him. They know that. Lazarus had been dead. He'd been dead for three days. People knew that. Oh my, what a conversation at this dinner table. I'm sure Jesus was enjoying every bit of it. Wow. This is real, folks. It happened. Now, this, this lady contrast Judas. She's unnamed here, but in John chapter 12, you can take my word for it or you can turn over there, but it was Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mark doesn't say that, doesn't name any names, just tells us about Simon the leper, doesn't mention Lazarus. That wasn't his point. His point is this story pointing to this lady and doesn't even care about the name Mary. Maybe that was, since this is a very early gospel, it was there to protect Mary. Because shortly after the cross, I mean, right at that time, it was, it was pretty, uh, if you're going to have something writing, and even 30 years later, when you have a gospel written, uh, maybe it was for protection. Didn't you know? Hey, I didn't get to check with her. Maybe I better not put her name. She might be offended. But uh, John, who writes in 90 A.D., does mention her name, and that was much later, and she's probably not even living at that time. Who knows? Uh, a lot of speculation. But you see what I'm saying? If we can make this real and put it in there, there's a little input. It helps us realize what's going on. She falls at his feet, pleads for... Uh, the life of her brother at one time. I'm taking you back in time whenever he was he was dead and she was pleading for Jesus. And here now we see her at the feet again. And it's dealing here with this costly perfume of pure nard and she breaks a vial. It's a routine kind of function. You have a guest that comes in and you put a little bit of perfume on them. And uh, that only makes sense. It was a common courtesy. As a matter of fact, it was a modern use of deodorant. Because at that time, if you're out there in the heat and the perspiration, and you've been walking, and you've been preaching and teaching and healing and all that, and without the kind of access of bathing, and that they had, perfumes were very, very important. And so, this is quite a gesture of kindness to a guest. This was commonly done. Perfume was kind of kept around if you could, if you could afford that, and, and to do that, that was quite the gesture. Uh, But she does something a little more different because look at this. There came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Extravagant, a broken flask. You break the perfume bottle. When you're doing that, you're saying, what? I'm giving it all. You normally wouldn't do that. You would put a couple of drops, a drop or two of perfume on that person and you wouldn't break it. This kind of bottle would contain this costly perfume. Perfume. This vial here that uh, she has. Alabaster vial. Jesus uses some small things. How about the widow's mites? How about the cups of water, if you give one a cup of water? How about the broken alabaster vase? (laughs) He takes the smallest, the most menial, average things, turns them into treasures. That's what Jesus does. We're clay pots. That's what He's doing to us. For His own use. She doesn't take a drop out. She just poured it. Poured it out. Breaks the flask where it just won't come out just a little bit. You know, you've had those things where it just takes... um, You'll only get a drop, you know. You know, you keep... That's going to take forever. No. Breaks the thing, just pours all over Jesus. Pours it over His head. Then anointed the feet of Jesus as it's stated in John and wiped His feet with her hair. She had dumped a year's value of perfume on his head and body, his feet, and it's it's stated as nard. Pure nard. Pure means it's undiluted. Sure, nard. Where's the nard come from? Spike nard. Was imported from India. This is not just any kind of perfume. It says costly perfume. This was imported from the best place possible. This was no average feat to do in those days to get perfume from India. If you could get a hold of this. It might have been something that had been handed down. Maybe for years. This is precious. And she says, this is it. This is the time. We know from this context that um, was worth a year's salary. 300 denarii. That's the price of a year's work for an average person. We're talking, folks, thousands of dollars. A year's salary for the average person Could you give up that for Christ? It was poured all over Jesus, completely extravagant. What devotion! She was not inhibited in showing her love for Christ. Do you see her motive? It was costly. She loved Him. The fragrance filled the whole room as John records in John 12. Just filled it, I guess. That's what happens when you worship Christ. When you worship Christ, it just comes out of you and people see it and feel it and they either like it or they don't. It fills the whole house. Does my devotion to Christ cost me anything? Does it cost me anything? Look at the indignance of this. Look at the response of this. Verse 4, but some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. It's a waste? They didn't see it as worship. They saw it as a waste. They were scolding her. It means that they were indignant. They rebuked her harshly for doing what she did. Matter of fact, that word for um, rebuke... um, And of course, you have this wasting, this anger that they have, it says here. They snorted their anger. Like angry horses. They were angry. You ever heard of a horse snort when they're angry? Does that happen, Debbie? Does that happen? That is the word that is used for that. That's the thought. You know who they were? Well, we know it's the disciples. But who started it? Well, for lack of time, I'm just going to tell you it's found in John twelve six. If you don't believe me, you better turn there. <laughs> Always check me out, please. But some were indignantly remarking the truth is that it's it's Judas. He was ready to betray Jesus right there on that Saturday. He's been ready a long time before that. He saw the worth of that. He knew. The other disciples chime in. Do you see what happens when you have somebody that has a little bit of influence? He's the treasurer. They listen to Him, and all of a sudden they're saying the same thing. As somebody is worshiping Christ in the most elite way, one of the biggest maybe types of worship you ever see in the Bible. What lavish love, supreme act of adoring, and the anger is picked up by the disciples off Judas. Given to the poor. All of a sudden, they're so concerned about the poor now? Yeah, right. We want to give it to the poor. The ultimate priority. There is no other priority in mankind. I can tell you right there, in one word. You know what it is, don't you? Worship. There is nothing bigger than that in all of mankind. Judas was a thief, like a devil. He wanted the money in the box. He didn't want that to be poured out on Jesus. That's thousands of dollars. Probably, let's just say, let's say $30,000. I could have had that. Because he steals from the back. Maybe he could have taken that and sold it. Wow. Well, Jesus defends her. Leave her alone. Stop it right now. Cut it out. What are you doing? Jesus defends her, puts himself between them and her. This is an extreme act of worship and devotion, and it was costly in that sacrifices are something that cost us. I think Mary really understood things. I don't know how much she understood that this Christ is going to die, but I think she believes it, and He's been saying it all along, and I'm sure He's He's been saying it here. I'm going to have to die. I want to tell you. I want you to know beforehand. And she knew what he had done with Lazarus. So yeah, I think that in some way she knew that this was a preparation for his burial. I don't know how deep she understood it, but she knows about resurrection. It happened to her brother. She was the one pleading, if you remember. What an expression of love! Worship is better than even giving to the poor. That was taken out of Deuteronomy 15.11. That we are to give to the poor and such. But you know what? 2,000 years have gone by. Testimony of adoring, sacrificial, selfless worship. Her gesture is a memorial. Jesus says this. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish you can do good to them, but you can, uh, do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. What she's done is going to be known. You know what? We are right here today and we're talking about it right now. And it's been done for 2,000 years. Oh my. And what He did for her. And He gave her what she could do. Now, you know, what you do now counts for eternity? Did you know that? What you're doing now in your life counts for eternity. Are you investing into the kingdom? I'm not just saying money. I'm saying yourself. Are you investing yourself in others? Are you really giving that away? Do you really worship Christ? Then that means invest into this kingdom. The kingdom is made of people. One last thing. Judas Iscariot Iscariot is Kiriath. 23 miles south of Jerusalem, he's the only disciple who is not from Judea. It has been stated. You know what? Jesus gave a famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Did you know that Judas experienced that great Sermon on the Mount? There aren't many sermons that you can remember. Matter of fact, there's probably not one that you can remember that I've ever done. We we have line upon line, precept upon precept, and it just kind of starts building up and as years go by but you can't really remember I can't remember I remember talking about last week about the second coming and such you know and think about where we've been in Mark but you can't remember you know you don't really remember those things but it builds up you know what that's one sermon that everybody knows unbelievers know about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes you want to know something one of the greatest privileges that Judas ever had was that he heard Christ's words he heard the Sermon on the Mount he saw the miracles Christ he saw the feeding of the 5,000. He saw the feeding of the 4,000. He saw the storm that was kept back. He saw Jesus give eyes to the blind and ears to the deaf. He saw Jesus walk on water and raise dead people. Judas never became born again. He saw it all. He heard it all. His motive is found in Matthew 26.15. He's the treasure. He is the one who holds the bag. His motive is something more than the kingdom of God. But he sees now that Jesus is not here to bring in the kingdom in a physical way, in a political way. So, because of that, I've wasted three years. You can see he has hatred. I have wasted all my time with this junk. And I'm not getting paid for it. So, I'll take the money. As a matter of fact, I'll take it and run. Judas didn't operate alone. We know that Satan entered Judas a few days later. Satan went inside of him. The sin of Judas has no equal. It was part of the plan of God, but yet he's held accountable for that too. There was one other sin that was done, the sin of Adam, that is just as heinous. Adam had walked and talked with God. The two sins, there are the most heinous crimes ever committed to have that knowledge of God and to turn your back on Him. I know that Judas was ordained to this role, but God was sovereign in this way. And it never nullifies man's responsibility. You say, well, if God's already planned it, then that's the way it's going to be, so I'll I'll just act that out. Oh, my dear one says that they don't know what they're saying they don't know what eternity means Judas was guilty he made choices in this life and they added up and finally there at that proper time there it is I believe this happened in a process of decline it just doesn't happen one day you wake up ooh, boom. I think I'll walk away from God no it's been there and it just builds and so we know the story. He goes to the priest. They're glad they heard this because this is going to make this easier. Now we're going to be able to do it if, with the help of him and it won't cause a riot. And so he starts seeking the time, the opportune time. Jesus, whenever he'd be most vulnerable, no public riot. Folks, I close this out. No contrast. Right? Is there any contrast there? Oh, yes, there is contrast is that there is worship and that's what Christians do and there is treachery either we're drawn to Christ and you desire him more and more, can every one of you say that I desire him more than I did a year ago I have a hunger for him because of the word of God or are you repelled by him are you becoming closer Are you being drawn further away? We should be showing signs of being closer, not further away. You know how many people you affect if you don't show that you're growing closer to Christ? If you're a private person? This is all about people here. As Christ focuses on how people respond to Him. Next week, you're either going to be closer to Christ or you're going to be further from Christ. There's no middle ground. Be a living and holy sacrifice to Christ. This scene was a tender scene. At the same time, it was diabolical. How does this story come together? And that's what we're going to be looking at in the next several weeks, working our way up to that great resurrection day. That's how this is all going to work out in the way that we do it on our Sundays. Let's pray. Father in heaven,